Hey, how you doing? This is the Practitioner's Corner, brought to you by Work Defined. Steve O'Brien is our guest today. Uh, Steve, would you do us a favor real quickly and just kind of introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, William. Uh, Steve O'Brien, I'm the uh, Senior Vice President of People Solutions at uh, Cineos Health. I uh, have been in the talent acquisition and HR space generally for about the last 20 years. Okay. Okay. So, uh, and you just, uh, when did you start this position? Because last time we talked, I think you're in, you're doing talent acquisition. You're on the TA side. Yeah, this is hot off the presses. Uh, so in December of uh, okay. 23. Yep. Sounds like an important position you got here, Steve. You kind of yeah. stepped it up in life. Yeah. I, well, it's, you know, it's debatable. I'm certainly excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it has taken me out of my familiar um, landscape and yes. into... Uh, looking yeah. at the way that the way that HR interacts to deliver service for the business, and that's that's fun, but uh, yeah. it's true that that's not talent acquisition. Yeah, yes. no. For, for all right, so so for for context, because I've known you for a long time. I've known you when Did were you, you a recruiter? Condolences to Ryan <laughs> offline. <laughs> true. Are we being recorded right now? Are yeah, we, are we being recorded? <laughs> You weren't a recruiter when I met you, right? I yes. forget. And so I was a recruiter when we met. So Ryan and I met. Uh, we were both very, very young, just as handsome, but very, very young. Uh, 2010. Uh, I know. Yeah. Wow. Weird. Time flies. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, so I got into recruiting out of my undergrad. I did an undergrad in philosophy, uh, which there's really sort of a very polarized motive. You either want to be unemployed or you want to go to grad school. Right, like 100%. 100%. Sort of the, the, the motivators. Um, I did want to go to grad school uh, uh, for as long as I can remember. I wanted to be a lawyer, and so I picked philosophy. I enjoyed it, but I picked right. it because it had good LSAT scores. Right, it's sort of right. a very practical decision. Um, uh, in spite of the practicality of that decision, uh, I did not continue that pattern in decision making because when I met a woman that didn't want to be a grad school girlfriend, I abandoned all heretofore plans. <laughs> I said, well, let's see where this relationship might go. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, she's now my wife and the mother of my children. So it worked out. Um, my father wasn't thrilled at the moment, uh, but uh, he's talking to me again now. <laughs> So what along the way is, so you started as a recruiter right now, you're uh, obviously in HR. What's the, what's the difference between TA, the mindset, what's the difference between TA and HR in your opinion? Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll tread lightly on speaking for the, the HR point of view as I'm a sort of a, sort of a new entrant, but I, right. I will offer some early, early thoughts. Observations. Early, yes. some early observations. Um, yes. I'm going to stereotype TA a little bit. And for the listeners, bear with me if you don't mind. Um, there is a very practical and tactical reality to talent acquisition where what have you done for me lately is not a completely ridiculous way to frame your relationship with the business, right? Right. Um, it's not about uh, debating the strategic merits of path A and path B and then leaving it to the business to decide. It is I have a role or a set of roles, and I need reliable candidate flow with the right quality and caliber available real time at a price that I can afford. Right? You know, it's very down to earth. And right. so I, I used to say to colleagues, um, as we were going through a TA transformation here at Cineos, 
that talent acquisition is, is, is first and foremost a, a tactical function. And, and the illustration I would give is let's imagine that I was a brilliant strategist and everybody agreed. No debate. Steve is great. I, I agree. I agree. You play along nicely. <laughs> we have consensus. That's what is that a quorum? We have a quorum. We have a quorum. Yes, yes. quorum yeah. But tactically, I couldn't. I couldn't plan my way out of a paper bag. Right. Right. What you're going to do is you're going to get rid of me, and that's the right decision as a TA leader. Right. Now let's right. put the, the the terms in in reverse order. Let's say that I'm a mediocre strategist that you really don't want me at the annual business planning table. But from a tactical perspective, I can get the job done. You know what you're going to do? You're going to tolerate me. And the only point that I'm making with that illustration is how real world and brass taxi talent acquisition is. Right. Now, when you look at a, a, a function within HR that I think has a lot of analogs to that rea reality is shared services. Shared right. services is measurable. Uh, shared services is intersecting with reality. And I don't mean to minimize strategic work as not reality, but it's very different when you compare how do we think that we want our performance management program to run and how are my employees going to update their address so that they can apply for a mortgage, right? right? These are very different kinds of service. Um, and so when you look at like TA versus HR, there are elements of HR that are very brass tacks. And then there are elements of HR that are more uh, conceptual, right? The COEs are setting the leading practice. They're in charge of policy decisions and determining the programs, uh, but they're not as much about the operationalization of it. And I think that's where you see some of the perspective divide is, are you on the hook for delivering a concrete good or are you on the hook for shaping a strategic point of view about a key topic or core discipline within HR? So, is it is it your first of all? I love the analogy. Is it your position, or do you think that, from a value chain perspective, should one be more in line with one or the other of those? Like, are you more valuable if you're if you're in HR? Are you more valuable to the organization if you're tactical? So I've actually never been more persuaded that the analogy of like the body is is instructive here where like if the eyes wanted to be ears or the ears wanted to be a nose that they'd all be envying the wrong thing it's right. really in the interaction of these key things that we find really great capabilities and and look as a ta guy that you know wants to avoid romanticizing something trust me i don't willingly run into this imagery but as i've gotten to understand better the way that the HRBP, the COE shared services, you know, should interact, the more I'm convinced that you really need ex excellent disciplines within the COEs to set leading practice and to be out there thinking about the program level decisions that we want to operationalize. And then you need a different skill set in taking this roadmap and translating it into repeatable experiences that the business appreciates that are delivered at a measurable interval so that we have KPIs and predictability. Like, it's a fair question is one more important than the other. And I've never been more convinced that it's, it's asking which is more important sight or hearing like, right. It's the interaction between the two that leads to greatness. So, so now that you made the switch at Cineos. I'd say transition. Transition. Okay. Transition. I made the transition. What are you thinking so, about now? What, what's keeping you up at night? It's a, it's a full transition. It's a full transition. Yeah. Um, so we, we have gone Is it a full transition, Steve? <laughs> no. <laughs> Go ahead. We have uh, 
So we have been, we have been on a journey of a target operating model transformation for the last year, right? So my movement into the people solutions function is intersected with our, our HR transformation. <clears throat> so maybe the best way to answer that question is talk a little bit about um, that target operating model view. So what we have decided to do uh, is to move into a, a modified Ulrich, right? So for those that are not HR nerds, the Ulrich model, generally speaking, is you've got the HRBPs, the COEs, and shared services, right? And a modification on the Ulrich would be, are you going to add a fourth capability? Uh, we have decided to add the fourth capability, People Solutions, which is the group that I'm leading. What People Solutions responsibility is, is to help facilitate bringing agility and change readiness into HR, right? So the, right. if you had a criticism of the Ulrich model, and this is not Steve's insight, this is the kind of thing that if you Google enough, you're going to find this. The criticism of the Ulrich, of the Ulrich model is, is a bit brittle. It's, right. it's sort of rigid, and that rigid can lead to friction between the components like the COEs and the shared services function. And that rigidity uh, in some industries is just not fit for purpose. Sinios is a professional services company. We need to respond rapidly to customers. And the way that we respond to customers is deploying highly skilled people at the right place at the right time. That requires agility. So for us, launching people solutions uh, was the way that we were going to introduce that flexibility into our target operating model. I love it. I got, okay, so the question is about programs because in talent acquisition and in uh, HR, you do a bunch of programs that you roll out, uh, some of which roll out exactly how you think, and they're super successful, and some <clears throat> not so much, but it's experimentation, right? Yeah. Without the company names and all of that stuff, uh, Ryan and I were cur curious about programs that you've released and tried, again, through your career, yeah. at any given point, a program that went really well for you and a program that did not go well for you. Yeah. So I've got two good examples, and they actually both rely on the same pivot point, but one pivoted in my favor, and, and the other it pivoted uh, <laughs> not so much violently away from me. <laughs> okay, let's start with the bad. <laughs> let's let's, let's get into it. True right. Eagles fan, right there. <laughs> Stop it. So it happens to be that the bad sequences chronologically after the good. So it going pear shaped caught me off guard. It was one of those things where I thought that, hey, this is going to work. It's worked before. Uh, so I was in, I've been on the supplier side for the majority of my career. I worked for IBM and Monster and various other providers um, with Job.com before this. I was on the supplier side, but also acquiring lots of small to mid-sized organizations and rolling, and rolling mm -hmm. them up. Right? So most of my world has been trying to integrate a solution into a foreign culture from right. a company perspective. I'm not an employee of the company, and I'm trying to... Um, bed down a process in a foreign culture or a company. <clears throat> so what what I wanted to do with this company was what, what happened was <laughs> yeah, I wanted to agree some principles that we were going to administer the program according to, but admittedly the principles wouldn't be fully enforceable if people chose to not be honest about it. Right. So I didn't have a system of record and a way to demonstrate at, at an aggregated level, you have non-compliance, right? What I would have needed to have is a gentleman's agreement in a sense that we are not going to do this. We all uh, agree to adhere to this. And the truth is that if any of us wanted to betray this, I couldn't really prove it. So we've just got to stack hands, right? right. Um, and uh, I, I thought this was entirely reasonable. 
And I thought that it was <laughs> of agreement to lead to better outcomes than a um, ruthlessly legislative environment from a governance perspective. Yeah. And the client, <laughs> yeah, the client said to me, if you can't prove it, we're going to do it. You can't stop us. <laughs> nice. No nice. longer reasonable. Huh. Truly flabbergasted. <laughs> Like honestly, can't stop us. Yeah, and I was, you know, I was so caught off guard. And this has happened a few times. I have a funny, like, similar anecdote. I'll tell you, but I was so caught off guard. I wasn't angry. I was curious. Like, like, you just have to over. Genuine, yeah. You genuinely become curious at at the turn. Anger, and I, I was really curious, and I said. Would, okay. would okay. I be understanding you correctly that the only governance you'll agree to is what can be ruthlessly demonstrated? Punitive, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have no shared agreements. It's only what can be enforced through systems of record. Okay. Um, and, and honestly, the client was like, yes. Why would you think that anything else would be agreeable? And and that, that just that's – a, That's a great question. <laughs> I was using logic and, uh, and uh, rational thought, but you know what? Fair, fair statement. Yeah. It was before the time of memes, but that would have been when you would have said, this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> this is nice. This is That's perfect. This, this is it. How about a program where things just went uh, remarkably uh, well for you? Okay. Yeah. So, so similar theme, uh, informal agreements um, yes. and, and aspiring together with a customer or a stakeholder for what could be true, even though we admit at the moment it's not. Right. So I had a customer, uh, they agreed that they did not like my company. Um, (laughs) and they were not, I I need, I need, I need to be in your world more. And I agreed with with them. Yeah. It was one of these things where they're like, Hey, all these things are factually true and also subjectively undesirable. Right. (laughs) And I was like, I kind of understand your analysis. So, so long story short, I said, um, do you believe that I care to fix this? And do you believe that I have the skills to fix it? Right? Like before we dive in, like where am I in your analysis of this problem? And long story short, they said, I do believe that you care. And I do believe that you could fix it. And I said, okay, so you have already put me on notice, right? Like you've already notified my company that you no longer plan to do business. So what I'm going to ask for is across the next nine months, let me do what I believe is necessary. And play along with my thesis about what that is, right? Now, you may disagree and you may think I'm an idiot or it may not work. And worst case scenario, I'm gone in nine months anyway. Best case scenario, we have a lot of history together and we could preserve a pretty special relationship if I'm right and right about what needs to be done. Uh, Even though I couldn't prove any of that, contrary to the original that I had told you, this client said, fair enough, I'll play along. And I said, okay, first things first. All problems that we analyze will be devoid of fault finding. It'll right. all be on the basis of root cause. I don't care yeah. whose fault it is, my right. fault, your fault. I will never accuse you of anything simultaneously. Please never accuse me for the next nine months. And let's right. root cause analyze everything where I will steel man your position. I will charitably interpret your feedback and I will aspire to address it. Long story short, um, that client is actually still a customer of my previous employer. It, it, it worked. It, yeah. <laughs> all, of it, all of it was permission-based. All of it was agreeing on what could be true if we yeah. both aligned on our vision for the program and then committing to honor the, sp- the spirit of that vision, even though I couldn't prove and they couldn't prove whether or not it was occurring. 
Go ahead, Ryan. I'm curious around around the point of proving. They they seemed, based on your story, they seemed like they needed proof of everything. Where was that switch? Where did they say, yeah, okay, let's just go along for the ride? What made them take that? Yeah, so relationships can get into a factual arms race um, where – there's legitimacy to both parties' frustration with the situation, right. but there's mm-hmm. a suggestion that the path forward is this sort of zero-sum fault-finding. We're sure. like, either you're responsible <clears throat> or, or I'm responsible for the fact that neither of us like being out on this boat together, right? That's right. And, and, and I find that um, there are very few cases where that's practically uh, or pragmatically a, a good way to approach reconciliation. Right, like right. Rec- reconciliation to to be a bit soft for a second about like these categories, but I do think they're highly relevant in partnerships and in building HR programs. Is finding out how do we let go of the grievance list that we 100%. may legitimately have, mm-hmm. yep. and instead focus on vision casting. What do we want to be true? And no, yes. I'll probably fail to live up to it and it won't be intentional. And I give you permission to call me out on it. And what do you want to be true so that we can align on how we're both pulling for this program? Right. It's what, it's what South Africa did uh, after, after apartheid was uh, truth and reconciliations. So they went through a period of time where they just said, okay, let's own our past. Yeah. Every, everyone. And you're not, you know, we're not going to punish. We're not going to do any of that uh, finger pointing or any of that other stuff. Everyone own up to what you did. That's right. And that was across the board. And then they moved forward, but they had to reconcile. You know, and I'm I'm kind of butchering the whole story, but they had to reconcile the, their past. Yeah. And instead of like you did this, and we'll never forget, and the grievance list, etc., etc., they they basically said, okay, let's get all that stuff out. Okay, we'll talk about it, but then we're going to turn the page yeah. and we're going to move forward together in a shared vision. And, and it's, it's this kind of partnership strategy that I actually think <clears throat> is useful when looking at moving into a people solutions role right. or useful at looking at how do we make HR as effective as it could be. When you're in talent acquisition, my perspective is that you have to learn how to let go and move forward with people that you've got some tough history with. Or you can't be in talent acquisition, right? Because if you carry all that weight on your shoulders and every time a hiring manager disrespects you, doesn't oh, yeah. show up for a briefing call. Uh, the technology doesn't, doesn't work mm-hmm. the way it was supposed to or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the, 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 the weight on you as a professional is too high. And so you've, you've got to build this muscle of letting go and moving forward and vision casting or contracting. And yeah. so coming out of talent acquisition into a, a role like People Solutions that works across the COEs and the HRBPs, uh, I, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity to apply uh, not conflict resolution, but just cooperation generating relationship practices, right? right? right. Like right. You, you know, the HRBPs have a legitimate and important desire to partner with business leaders to translate business strategy into people strategy. And that can generate friction sometimes when they're not getting the resources they, they need to meet that request or agreement with the business entirely legitimate i'm not here to say that like oh you shouldn't be frustrated also we need to figure out given you have made that promise what can we do about it right and instead of like you know grinding on should it or shouldn't be this way should or shouldn't doesn't matter what are we pragmatically going to do to meet your needs and the business leader's needs 
So I want to go back to, to if your son or daughter were exiting college right now and they wanted to get into the talent game, mm-hmm. what advice would you give them? Uh, no. I, <laughs> I would, I would this say, is not why I sent you to school. Thirteen fail. <laughs> No, I'm sorry. Steve, what advice would you give? Because you've, you've learned and accumulated a bunch of knowledge up till now, and you're going to keep accumulating. But what would you bestow upon them? Yeah, I, I would recommend that they start on the supplier side, personally. Yeah. Um, I think oh, interesting. You, I think that you get a lot of laps around the track on the supplier side in a way that the corporate environment sometimes can't afford you. Right. Um, I also think that there is some extraordinary value in the fundamentals of recruiting, time management influence, negotiation, contracting with customers, like all of these skills are wildly foundational for success later in your career. Right. So I think start on the supplier side is one. The second is don't rush out of the individual contributor stage of your career. One of the things that I've noticed uh, is the desire to have evidence that your career is progressing often right. gets confused for right. getting promoted at 24 to being a director of town acquisition. Right. right. And, and the, the caution against that for me is you only have so many years, if that is your destiny to be, to be putting library books of experience and wisdom on the shelf. Once you've moved out of that chapter of life, your story creation as an individual contributor is over. So I hope you have built a big enough library of your personal experiences to generate credibility and relatability through the remainder of your career as you lead and manage others, right? The the third is do ask yourself, where do I want to be in 10 to 15 years so that you don't inadvertently get stuck, right? And so recruiting is something, and this isn't true for everyone, but recruiting is something that can be like being an auditor or a consultant in a big four firm. There's a period of life where doing 2000 hours during busy season works and fits with your priorities. But if you've done 2000 hours, the first quarter of a year for the last 15, at some point you get tired. And because talent acquisition is such a delivery focused function, do pursue self-awareness about, can I do this for 30 years? Is that my path? And if it isn't, be considering what your various off-ramps are and ways that you want to contribute to talent after you've done your time carrying a bag, so to speak, or being responsible for a rec load. So where in your career, this this is interesting, when they dig a little deeper here. So take us back to the recruiter days. Walk us up. Where did your career, or has it fallen in line to this advice? Or is this experience saying, don't do what I did? No. So I did. Uh, <clears throat> so I carried a rec load for about seven years. Uh, I would be dishonest if I were to suggest that I didn't want to move faster, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate that I was not able to. That I, I, <laughs> that I, was, I just wasn't good enough. Yeah, I was, I was really suppressed in a lot of ways. I, I was kept in, in the rec carrying business for a long time. And it benefited me. Right. Um, yeah. And then the, the pivot point for me, so I was I was on the the contract recruiting side uh, for three years. I was on the professional services side for three years, and then sort of project project managing 
talent acquisition project for about a year to two years. That's sort of how the chunks went for me. And what I realized as I was doing that second chapter, the professional services work, what I really enjoyed was making large talent acquisition systems work for a customer as opposed mm-hmm. to filling the individual recs. Now, I still filled individual recs, but it was the art of building teams that could all pull in the same direction that really attracted me. And so that helped me realize, uh, you know, where Ryan and I met was a company called Conexa. And that's what made me realize when I was at Conexa that what I loved was building cultures that produced great talent acquisition teams and helping customers benefit from that high performance. And so that was the off-ramp for me about year seven was into managing programs and building that kind of culture and team capability. Any any evidence that, uh, that you've seen or that great corporate recruiters have a have a starting in in staffing because i've heard this i've heard this for all actually i've heard this the entire time i've been in the industry is that that recruiters if you really want to learn recruiting go work for you know manpower go work for somebody over there and go do the bit work both sides of a desk do that whole i mean you do that whole thing and then when you get to a corporate environment you'll be ready yeah now i don't have any proof that any of that is true but I, I wanted to get your take on it. So this is the kind of question that confirmation bias is going to be all <laughs> over for me. Because I have a preconceived belief because right. I went through that path. And so I'm right. struggling to see the world through those, those lenses. But that said, um, the reason that I think it's not simply confir- confirmation bias um, is that if you are in a high volume agency recruiting environment there are some right. fundamental things that you need to be able to survive with your head screwed on on right if you can survive benefits right like right the, the the ability to with grace navigate a really upset customer right if you're on the agency side you're going to get that in spades oh yeah, yeah. developing oh, yeah. the emotional we coming your way oh yeah, yeah. it's the, it's the first mm-hmm. 30 minutes of saving private ryan if you could just survive, <laughs> yeah. If you could just survive that first thirty minutes, eh, you got a shot. It's a hundred percent the case. So that is really instructive, and it's not that you don't get that in the corporate world. Right. It's the concentration of it, right? Yes. And then, like carrying a rec load and having to perform when you're on the agency side, especially when I was recruiting. I think uh, maybe not as perfectly true now. Uh, you don't have applicants. You don't have employee referrals. You don't right. have internals. You have one source channel, mm-hmm. right. people that you have persuaded to apply to your customer customer's role, right? And so to start your recruiting career so focused on direct sourcing allows you to build deep competency in one of the hardest source channels, right? right? And so when you then do move corporate and you've got the, uh, I think it's a luxury and I, I don't think it's a bad thing to have it. I think it's a great thing. Right. You add internals, employee referrals, and applicants into your source channel mix because you've already got that core competency yeah. in sourcing. I, I just think it makes you a, a a more resourceful and balanced recruiter personally. Okay. I, I, I wouldn't you know, not that you're asking for my opinion here, but I would no, not I disagree. <laughs> no, you well, you spent a lot of time. No, I spent a lot of time at Connexa and IBM. You'd see yeah. the same. You'd see, you'd see the same stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I, it's if I now I never went into a corporate role, but had right. I have gone into a corporate role, I I 
firmly believe I would be much better, much better suited. I don't know about easy, but much better suited. Let's say right. probably easy for me. Yes, because I'm a savant. <laughs> yeah. Let's be real. Let's be real. That I, I just think it would be, I'd be much better situated to succeed and to help the team along, to move yeah. the team forward. And this this is also again from a. a a specific perspective and context on talent acquisition, right? right. And so like, the, admittedly, there are what I call unicorn recruiters. There are unicorn right. recruiters that are, are built in a way that they will have a, a successful 30 year career in talent acquisition. Right. I just find that many people have a lifetime limit on the number of cold calls and rejections they can take. hundred percent. And yeah. when you've reached that limit, you've reached that limit, right? So I, I right. acknowledge the unicorns, right? right? And I also acknowledge that there are folks that are in the corporate recruiting world from the jump and their tenacity and their composition as a person Curiosity. Yeah. is going to drive them into the same behaviors and core capabilities that you, you get coming out of the agency world. But if, if, if you ask me, you've got 10,000 humans yeah. and you want to make the maximum number of great recruiters give me their path. Yeah. I'm probably going to throw them in a bullpen for at least the first 18 months. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Kelly services. Here you go. Go. You're spending two years there. Good luck. As um, we get a placement, you get a chair. I mean, yeah, right. real. that's just you, how yeah. it works. We'll move you off boxes. So at first you start on, you sit on <laughs> copy boxes right. and then you kind of, you, you start getting, you start accumulating stuff. Oh, uh, now you get a phone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Steve. i saying we've all been there, but you know. Oh. Mm. So, Success around you, the, the, the question I'm going to ask is twofold. It's the people that are surround you, what, do, what, do the, what characteristics do they have to have to interact with you in a really, in a really successful way? And the other part is you with the people that you interact with. So yeah. one's, one's the people that are more your contemporaries and people that are subordinates. And the other is, is the people that you are, you know, you're talking to the board, C-suite, other, other folks. What do you find? What is success for you? Yeah. What, do you, what, do you, what type of personality traits? What What do you need from them on both sides? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question, and it's actually one that I, I I think a fair bit about. And the reason I think about it is, um, you're right to suggest that as a leader, selecting for certain well suited behaviors is yeah. important. Yes. The balance in that is. Uh, I still feel a sense of responsibility to not ask those that work with me to accommodate my foibles. And, and wow. So, and so, yes, That's interesting. it's true that yes. there's, a, there's a type of person, which I'll describe, that I tend right. to be more like simpatico with. Yes. But I'm, I also aspire to not put that burden on everyone else that like, oh, I need to fit into his idiosyncrasies. Right. So that's the sort of like my preamble. So what is the, what are the, what is the idiosyncrasy? Yeah. The idiosyncrasy is, and I refer to it as coming to outer space. I often invite people to come and dream about things that can seem very unpragmatic right. or difficult to anchor back on how it's relevant to what's in front of us now. Yes. And, and for somebody without me finding out their learning style um, and communicating effectively what I think we are doing, they look at that and say, what the ever heck... <laughs> Right, right. Talking about this topic, before, right? right. Um, yeah. so, so people that are comfortable switching back 
between like concrete and tangible and speculative and visionary tend to be more comfortable working, working closely with me because they're predisposed to say, oh, we're in the visionary squishy land right now. We just need to lean into imagining what we want to be true, not worrying about the fact that it's not true, right? Mine are, um, I thrive around people that are contrarians. Yeah. So they see the world differently, or at least you know they see something differently than than I do, which I love. Um, people that can deal with a lot of ambiguity, uh, and also um, you know, people that don't ask for permission. Hmm that beg for, for forgiveness. I rather someone just take off and go, yeah, Hey, we're going to paint this whole house black. It's like, oh. yep. and then all of a sudden then they tell me, Hey, we painted that house black. It's like, uh, okay, well, yeah, I'll, I'll figure that out. <laughs> but, but I like that rather than someone coming. Cause I, I remember early in my career, people would ask for, you know, like ask for permission. Like, Hey, Will, can I, I want I'm thinking about doing this thing. I'm like, why are we, why are we talking? Just yeah. go do it. Just, yeah. I, you don't I need to a- talk. I had a boss. So I was, a, I, when I was um, 23, 24, I was a bit of a cannonball. And um, it, it led me into situations where frequently bosses would need to like redirect me. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and you're not, you're not getting that today. That's, yeah. well, <laughs> Let's so, be real. Come on. That's right. So when, when I was um, about a, a year and a half into my career, I had a boss very compassionately, take the sting out of a redirection uh, by saying that it's easier for them to redirect someone with inertia than to get someone not moving to move. Um, And and I, I appreciated the generosity of taking the sting out of it. (laughs) And as you're describing preferring people that are sort of um, a bias for action, it's true. I I think if people are made of the, the sorts of material, the material that just want to get on with it, as a leader, it's a little bit easier to start directing, shaping, and putting up boundary lines than if somebody just is, uh, I will move when you tell me explicitly what to do. I don't have time for that. It's- I don't have to, I don't. Have, I don't have time for that. But the other part of the question is you, where you thrive with people that are above you, leaders that are above you. What environment do you need to thrive? Yeah. Um, I can be a relatively formulaic thinker. Um when it comes to like making an argument or a recommendation. Right. And so in, in conversations where being formulaic is a virtue, I, I thrive. Right. And so if, if we mm-hmm. want to apply a consistent method to analyzing an enormous set of data, um, that's going to be, uh, where I'm well suited and will manage up effectively. Um, if you need me to go sell something, uh, that doesn't exist to an executive that I don't have a personal relationship with. And it's all sort of on pizzazz and vision. Um, It's not that I can't do it. It's just not my superpower because I'm going to want to lean back on the evidence and the foundation for my argument and what I know that the listener needs to hear to be moved. Right. I don't have either of those things. I'm just sort of without resource. Yeah. Yeah, it's more of a at that point it's more of a car, carnival trick or a parlor trick. Yeah, and it's some people are good at that. And I mean, again, I think as I'm thinking about it, I think your degree in philosophy and its anchors uh, of philosophy, I think that probably had some has something to do with the way you, that that you are right now. Yeah, I think I think that that's right. I have habituated a fairly methodical approach to thinking and, right. and making an argument. 
Um, and as long as you don't kill people with exotic language, right. which every day, every day <laughs> I try and do a better job at, 100%. Uh, many, many folks find that it makes the argument democratically accessible, right? That like, I can see where he's coming from, even if I disagree. And right. that decreases tension and improves dialogue in my experience where, hey, look, you may think that my analysis is wrong, but at least you understand my analysis. Yeah. So I, so I, I know you're a thinker. I also know you're a reader. Tell us what's on your nightstand. What are you reading? So at the moment, uh, paper. I'm, paper. I'm, I'm, I'm rounding third on Dune. Oh, the sci-fi. Yeah. It's hmm. excellent. Not what I expected. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so I do, I do read a lot of nonfiction and I will, I will toss a bone toward the nonfiction category because I've always got something going there. Um, but I've, I've tried to broaden my uh, horizons a little bit to include some uh, high quality nonfiction or fiction rather. And Dune, so I'm about 800 pages in. It's so good. If you haven't read it, at least consider tossing it on audible. Really great story. Wow. Okay. Okay. And, and then in the nonfiction world, I just finished up Hidden Potential by Adam Grant. Yeah. So we're, we're going through a, a revolution uh, that, that, you know, shows up in all the thought leader blurbs, Josh Burson, Accenture, all, all the sort of the, the tastemakers of HR uh, in regards to the skills revolution, right? And so moving away from the, the job title, career path, sort of terminal role image of talent into the... Uh, we are uniquely composed of a large collection of skills that can unexpectedly produce adjacent capabilities that lead to paths that we haven't thought about before. And so as we're going through that transformation at Cineos and trying to think about what's our point of view on skills, um, I thought reading Adam Grant's Hidden Potential would be uh, apropos. You know, my struggle with skills uh, is uh, the lack of uh, skills. Um it's it's okay so all three of us went through the era of competency models yeah yeah where everyone fell in love with these large competency models and we kind of rolled them out etc only to find out that if you don't roll it out to every single facet of what you do in talent all the way from sourcing to outplacement then really you're only using it in a certain way and you're only using it in a certain area and it kind of fails if you're not hiring to it and firing to it then, you know, well, why are you, why are you even doing it? I look at skills currently. Now I might look at it differently in a, in a, in a year or two differently, but I look at skills as just the same stuff with different language. It's almost uh, animal, animal farm like, like we're just using different words to say the same thing. And I've had people that are experts at complicated models and skills say, no, it's, it's different. Yeah. Skills are more micro. Other than, okay. Fair. Got it. Totally understand. However, if you're not, if it doesn't proliferate, in my opinion, by the way, humble as it may be, if it doesn't proliferate your entire organization, then again, what's the real uptake? Yeah. So I, I vigorously agree with that. Um, I think that one of the risks with the skills-based um, paradigm is that it becomes nothing more than a re-articulation of a competency perspective. Right. right. So like we can return to that, but like on that observation, I agree. The 
awareness that if this doesn't inform decision making, which is a super simple articulation about that, if it doesn't inform who you hire, how you promote and who you fire, right. Right. then then it's a really ornate dressing on something that never gets showtime. showtime. And then the, the third thing about skills is, is, and each of these are actually part of our internal dialogue at Cineos about how we want to address these objections or think about these because they're material. Right. The third is um, the risk that we run to suggest that talent is simply a constellation of skills. Right. Hu- human beings are just, mm-hmm. you know, um, Orion in the sky. And here is the, why is that person an archer? Because these stars intersect this way. And that skills constellation is who they are, right? Like we know that's not true. Right. That grinds on us. But the question or the opportunity then is how are you going to ensure your skills approach at work is not reductive? Right. Ryan, last question. Bring it. Last question. Wow. I wasn't ready for that. I got to I got to think of a last question. All right, Steve. So let's wrap this up with three nuggets. Give us three nuggets off the top of your head here that the audience audience can take away uh, about Steve in Steve's career. All right, let's see. Um, As you're going through your journey, always take personally creating your own excellence, right? Like, Like whatever stage or step that you're at, commit yourself to becoming really, really great at something. Um, The second is build relationships where you actively pursue tough feedback. Um, and and be be able to take that without taking it personally. Um, one of the most instructive moments in my career uh, was a boss that I had who caught me playing poker at work. Uh, this was back <laughs> in the internet days where <laughs> online poker was biggish, <laughs> and uh, he could have fired me for it. And at a minimum, he could have really just expressed outrage right and then instead uh he called me into his office his office and all he said is you're better than this and we need you at your best how much you up <laughs> well from a career coaching perspective a lot from a poker perspective i'm not um, and so always, always pursue those relationships that'll tell you the tough things that you need to hear um and and cultivate an ability to not take it personally and then the third thing um Invest in continuous learning. And, and I, I, I get a sort of like a, a cliched reputation at work because I, I am always reading something. I, I do think that there's so much value and whether it's classics or it's um, uh, modern nonfiction like Adam Grant and IO Psych Research, the benefit to your own ability to think clearly that you get from reading the thoughts of others would be difficult to overexpress. And as professionals and and white collar workers in human resources or talent acquisition, a big part of what we do is think clearly and persuade others to apply their efforts according to our clear thoughts. And so always, always learning and, and improving your ability to, to do that is, is valuable. Drops Mike walks off stage. Steve, thank you so much for coming on Practitioner's Corner. It's a pleasure. One, two, three.